So, um, Carr, you want to start us off? There's a little background. I'm, I, I'm sure you probably are not terribly familiar with our podcast, but um, I'm a big fan of radio, and I read your book, Rebels on the Air, uh, quite, quite a while ago. Um, and I thought it was really, really interesting. And actually how I came upon it was I used to read Reason a lot, and I would read article after article seemingly and i'll be like man that was a great article and i would check the author and sure enough it was your name like you know six seven eight times out of ten and so that's what got caused me to go buy the book and, and really really enjoyed it so uh thanks for coming on and well thank you that's that's kind of you to say um and uh and, and are you like do you have like pirate radio type experience yourself or is that something uh, so I'm, a, I'm an amateur radio operator and and i've always wanted to um get into pirate radio uh you know real community broadcast radio um unlicensed but I, I i have not made the plunge yeah so but uh you're the the first chapter for anybody that hasn't uh read it out there the the, the first chapter describing those guys down in texas uh back in the 90s was, was it's really funny it's really you know it's inspirational in some weird bizarre way and uh and it actually I don't know if you remember this, but we got into a uh, conversation on Twitter not too long ago, maybe a year ago, um, about those guys and Ron Paul and you back in in the late '90s. Like, do, could you just give give a brief rundown? Yeah, well, let me tell people about this station. I I, I don't even I'm, I'm no longer in touch with Joe and Zeal. Um, I should get in touch with them now. Actually, you're making me wonder what they're up to. Um, but these guys. Um, had a pirate radio station in San Marcos, Texas, San Marcos, Texas, called Kind Radio, and it was always not K I N D. It was Kind Radio, like Kind Bud, because they were complete potheads. I don't know what that is, Jesse. Yeah, you have no idea. Obviously, <laughs> I don't either. We're just um, we're just I, we're just talking. I'm told we're just, something. We're just three friends talking here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, they uh, and, oh my god, these guys are stoned all the time. <laughs> it's, it, it really they're and and they're they're well. I'll, I'm getting ahead of myself, but. So it's just like they have their I they have their house in you know, the San Marcos is about an hour half an hour from Austin, um, and I stayed with them actually when I was moving out to Los Angeles. I had been in touch with them. I had, um, I think talked to them. I'd certainly been in touch with them on email, um, and they said, "Yeah, come stay with us," because um, I was moving from. Um, actually, it wasn't when I was moving to Los Angeles. It must have been when I was moving out because I went out to D.C. for a year. Oh, all right, all right. It, I, it doesn't. Matter. It's all coming back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does. It, I'm, I'm like getting stuck on like the least important. Um, they, the, thing, the thing is, I was stopping there on my way across the country, and they said, "Yeah, you could stay with us." And stay with us meant staying in their transmitter room. So there was this thing oh, releasing this high-pitched noise. I mean, <laughs> the loudest, most high-pitched noise you've ever heard in your life, right next to the stack of about eight dirty mattresses. Oh, God. <laughs> and I would fly down on. I am amazed that I managed to sleep at all. But basically, they're broadcasting out of their garage. And they had this constant the, – the garage had become their studio. Um and this constant movement of different people in and out, you know, a year, pa I mean, an hour passes and one guy comes in and he's like, he's going to play Motley Crue for an hour, <laughs> you know, and other people come in, they do like local music, you know, and they had talk shows and such. So I, um, and, and these were people that covered local politics, all kinds of people um, had um, shows on their station um, who, you know, they would put in some labor or money uh off air and get uh, in exchange for this but it was it was a really interesting like home-based community um broadcasting operation 
So they came out to DC. I was out in DC for a year, um, just doing a fellowship. Um, the, the one year of my life was spent there. And there was going to be a big demonstration set of workshops one day where people from around the East Coast um, pirate radio scene were um, you know, teaching things, having panels and discussing political strategy and so on. Um, and they were going to, and then, then they, either the next day or the day before, I don't remember which, we were going to have a big march on the FCC and on the National Association of Broadcasters. And me and Amanda Huron and Chuck Munson um, sort of went through whatever hoops we had to do to get, you know, the permits for this march and all that. Um, and so, and it was funny, what, they stayed with me, and it was funny um, watching them sort of shift from, like, the, just a the complete stoner hippie disorder of them and their rights to them being like drill sergeants at this march, like knowing where everybody was and who everyone had to be. It was like this, this like sudden, like every um, uh, collective competence. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah. They suddenly brought every synapse of their brain, started firing. And these were people who could not drive three blocks in their van without passing their joint around you know i was like they were giving me a lift and i and i was like i hope i don't get pulled over with these guys because they literally cannot stop smoking pot long enough to get you know 15 minutes down the road so uh and then after the um the march the idea was they were all everyone was going to go and um lobby um their congress people um for uh, legalizing low power broadcasting and their congressman was ron paul um, and I was not particular, I mean, this is 1998, you know, I was a libertarian, I was involved with the movement. I had, did not know anybody in Ron Paul's office. Um, but they, I guess they were sort of thinking like, well, it's, you know, Jesse's, you know, libertarian, he would be a good person to go with them. Yeah. What was your, what was your connection? Like, how did you get, how, you, you say you traveled across the, 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 the country and you stayed with them, but like, how did you get up with those guys in the, in the first place? I, I had been writing about um, pirate radio. I mean, I'd been involved with community radio in one way or another, going back to my college radio days, you know, I, even before, if you count to sort of being peripherally around the station in North Carolina where I was growing up. Well, uh, wait, wait, are you, you're from North Carolina? Yeah. Oh, me too. Where, where at? I'm, I'm from Chapel Hill. Where are you from? I'm from Raleigh. Oh, how about that? Yeah, yeah. When did you leave? What's your, or you uh, 2006. All right, so I left in 1988, so a little bit earlier. <laughs> That's when I was born. We overlapped, yeah. But there was a... Um, but at, at any rate, um, I did a feature for Reason. I wasn't working for Reason yet. It was the second article I ever wrote for Reason, and the first big one in 1995 was about Free Radio Berkeley, which was like sort of the leading... Yep. Um, or one of the leading um, pirate radio stations of the 90s. That's Stephen um, Dunifer, right? Yeah, Stephen Dunifer, uh, who did not yet hate me at that point. <laughs> no, he hates you. Uh, well, I mean, he, that, for anybody that's listening and doesn't, isn't familiar, I mean, that's very, very left-wing. I mean, it's, it's, that's left-wing anarchism right there, right? Yeah, yeah, he's an anar anarcho-syndicalist. We were getting a lot. I mean, the reason he started not liking me was because I wrote an article for a Seattle publication that mentioned people's complaints about how slow he was to send out his pirate radio kits. Um, and <laughs> so, wow. I mean, and then, he, then he started making... It's a little, um, it's a little testy. Remarks. What's that? It's a little testy of him. <laughs> yeah, he was, then he started making... Um, before that, he never complained about my politics. And after that, he was like accusing me of believing all this crap I don't even believe about like, you know, like supporting US intervention in Central America or some bullshit that I'd always been against. Um, but, you know, he, he can't. In fact, one of our we had a flame war um, on a micro radio list that got um, 
preserved for all for eternity in a uh, an academic press book about micro radio. Um, <laughs> we gotta find this. <laughs> somebody, it's like Andy. I don't remember the name of the book. It's like across the room. I can find it. But I, the guy who wrote his name, Andy Opel, O P E L. If you go to Google Burke. Google Books and search for like my name and Dunifer's, you can probably find at least a piece of us um, <laughs> fighting with each other. Um, <laughs> whatever, you know, fine. So I did, I, we're, we're on like story within story within story now. That's how um, the whole podcast it goes, though. So yeah, yeah. just keep and going. Ideally, the way that our past podcast goes is you want to keep diving down and you never come back. Yeah. yeah. Don't ever tie questions. up any loose ends. Just keep, keep going. <laughs> And then, but then, like my last um, thing I say somehow ties everything together. So, yeah, yeah. Right. One one sentence. Just I'm still stuck on why there were eight mattresses. I'm still stuck on why there were eight mattresses in this one garage. <laughs> the mattresses were a metaphor. I see what you did. Now we're, now <laughs> right. we're on the. Now we're going into the third mattress. <laughs> so, we are, so 1995, I wrote um, a story for reason, feature length story. It was called like I think Don't Touch That Dial. And it was this sort of mixture of being about the modern microbroadcasting movement, focused especially on Stephen Dunifer as the main character in it, and then also being about uh, the origins of the FCC. Do we need an FCC? Why do we have this um, federal agency that's deciding that this guy cannot go on the air? Um, and that sort of got me started writing about this stuff. Um, and I got sort of involved with the movement as a... I mean, mostly as like a sympathetic journalist, but I mean, I was on these email lists. I was privy to, I was going to these conferences. I was privy to these um, um, debates about strategy and tactics and so on. I, I remember there was this pirate radio gathering in West Philadelphia and they uh, we headed over to um, what was a pirate station called West Philly Pirate Radio um, or sometimes called Radio Mutiny. Um, and I hope I'm not conflating two different things like 20 years later. Oh, yeah, back. that'll be it's, ultimate sin. But it's a, um, they, and I remember like the sort of organizer there sort of saying, all right, we'll head up now. We've, we've, we've gotten rid of all the, of all the journalists. And I said, you guys, you didn't you know what I do for a living. And, oh, <laughs> you don't count, Jesse. It's okay. <laughs> so we went up to the, the studio and all. So I had been involved in this. So I was covering the movement and I was involved with the movement. I mean, and openly, I mean, it's not like I was deceiving anybody reading my articles about where I was coming from. And I started um, working on a book. I started working on Rebels on the Air. So it became like I was working on this book on the history of radio and also on what was happening with micro broadcasting. And I was, because I was talking to all these people, it was easy for me to spin that off into particular articles. Like one of the Two articles I ever wrote for the New Republic was about um, pirate radio in like 1998. You know, mm. um, the only op-ed I ever wrote for the New York Times was about micro broadcasting, hmm. and I remember one of the, uh, and it was like overtly like pro um, broadcasting without a license as like a form of civil disobedience. And yeah. I remember one of my Reason colleagues saying that uh, I was lucky they had no idea. They didn't know about the issues. So they had no idea how radical what I had written for right. them. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> was, yeah. That, that's how you slip something into the New York Times. Right. Um, it's, uh, um, but at, at any rate, um, you. so you were asking me, but, so that was my involvement at this time. Um, and there were these, you know, conferences. Like they had um, one in, uh, I mentioned in Philadelphia and the one in D.C. Um, there was another one. And when I was um, 
after I moved out to Los Angeles, I remember going up to one in, in the Bay Area. But what would happen is, I mean, these are generally, most of the people involved um, did not have a lot of money. I did not have a lot of money. You know, it, it, you, you're really only getting people from within driving distance, you know. And the, one, the only one I went to where you had people who were um, uh, coming from all over the country was when they had one in Austin, you know, I, which I think must have been where I first met Joe and Zeal. Um, and, and yes, this must have been it, because um, uh, that way you had people coming from both the West Coast and the East Coast, you know, right. sort of meeting in the middle. Um, so at any rate, they're out in D.C. for this thing, and um, they were staying with me, um, which I guess is why I was able to sleep in their transmitter room. That was, you know, reciprocation, right? Um, and uh, and I was like, all right, fine, I'll bring you over to... Um, I guess they were, uh, uh, they would stay with me one night and not the other night. I don't know. We, uh, so, and they, I, they were going to meet with their congressman. Their congressman is Ron Paul. It made sense for me to be the guy who goes over to the, to Ron Paul's office. Um, did but, you know, I mean, did you know of Ron Paul at that time? Of Ron Paul. Um, yeah. You know, I had, uh, I'd known of Ron Paul since like he was the Libertarian Party nominee. Um, yeah, in 88. Yeah, in fact, he was nominated in '87, um, and it was, uh, which was probably when I first heard of him. I was, um, I mean, I would have been in uh, high school, and I had, um, I was getting interested in in uh, in libertarianism, sort of coming at it from the left. And I remember I was um, put off by kind of by Ron Paul, who was at that time was not sort of seen as like this radical libertarian figure, but as this kind of um, like Republican interloper, like the way people think about Bob Barr now. Right. Uh, That's interesting. Yeah, so it's a, and he was actually, he was more libertarian on immigration back then, but actually less libertarian on foreign policy. You can find this interview he did with uh, the Bircher magazine, The New American, where he's open to an invasion of Cuba. It's like, you know, uh, yeah, I'd be kind of, uh, he doesn't say I will do it, but I mean, it's like, he he doesn't shoot it down. And it's, um, and you know, some of his comments on arms control then, it's really sort of coming from, he was skeptic of the, I, the IMF, I'm sorry, INF uh, arms control agreement, basically because he's just skeptical of treaties, you know? So he's sort mm-hmm. of meeting the Birchers from a different direction there. But again, it's kind of, I mean, you read this kind of stuff and you're thinking, I don't know, maybe they should have nominated that Russell Means guy instead. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, he's got in, uh, not elected back to Congress and he's clearly the most libertarian voice there. and. It's like I, I don't know anyone who works for him, but I know somebody who knows somebody who works for him and that kind of thing. So I wound up being like the person who kind of went there with them. Um, and it really didn't actually go all that well, the meeting, um, mm. because they launched into the history of their station. Oh, God. And the history their station began with actually this um, free. They, they had like some sort of print publication um, that was getting uh, uh I don't remember who was like if it was they weren't allowed to distribute it around a campus or something like that. Um, what a what kind of weed were they all smoking with Ron Paul? <laughs> <Right. Yeah. laughs> they, they managed to not um, bring it into the office with them, although I think they did duck into like a corner of the house <laughs> office building um, for, for a few hits, um, either before or after. Um, it was like before nine eleven when not everything is getting um, screened as you enter these. Right, but they had. Um, I mean, it was actually kind of an interesting case, which I won't bore you with the details of. I don't remember if I even put it in the book or not, but it was like a commercial speech case. It's actually an interesting case where 
um, a kind of um, dissident publication was being suppressed because it included ads. Um, like they couldn't distribute it for that reason. And I don't remember all the details, but that kind of is what sparked them to think, oh, we should have like maybe a radio station. That could be a way of doing this. But they start telling Ron Paul all this station and he, I mean, this story, and he's clearly kind of like trying to figure out why are they here? And it's very hard to like get a word in edgewise. So he's like thinking like, you want my help with this? He, th he was thinking they wanted their help with this fight over this publication that like all happened like five years or whatever earlier. Oh yeah, yeah, they hadn't even gotten to like what they were there for. Right, so finally, and it's like, you can tell it's like they're, they're a lot of time and I like, I'm trying to get in and, and steer it. So, but now they've got a radio station, you know, and Ron Paul says, well, you know, if it was up to me, we wouldn't have an FCC. We would just like auction off the airwaves or whatever. <laughs> and it, but it was not a, um, it's like, you know, that's where the conversation stood, should have started, you know? Right. Um, and they told me later that when they went to, um, I guess actually they must've been getting high before they went in because I went <laughs> my way and they went off to like make some copies of some literature with a Ron Paul staffer. And they were claiming that they really kind of turned on the Ron Paul staffer to their, uh, their cause. And hopefully that's true. Um, but it was a, uh, it was kind of a missed opportunity. Um, it, it was the sort of thing where kind of, some kind of training, and not that I'm in any place to give lobbying training. That's like the only time I've been on some excursion like that. But somebody should have sat everybody down and said, all right, here's the beginning, work out a beginning, middle, end in five minutes to get across the mean, and then right. answer their questions. He had been on their station via the phone before that, just as thinking of it as a local radio station. They had not mentioned, like, you know, we are engaged in <laughs> defying federal law. Um, and that would have been an interesting way in, you know, but I didn't, so there was, it was, it was an interesting, um, an interesting affair, if you will. That's funny. <laughs> um, yeah. And I wonder what they're up to now. Um, they were, they were, they were fun people. Um, yeah, I, mean, I want, I mean, I'm in, I'm, I'm down in Texas now. I'm, I'm, you know, I find myself at some meetups for random stuff like that i wonder if i'd ever come across them i don't know if they're still down here but where, where are you uh fort worth oh yeah so you're far away then from, from where yeah you're... pretty far although i'm down in austin and sam i i was down in san marcos uh floating the river down there not too long ago okay um that's a cool man that, that area down there is so cool the hill country yeah no well one of my um i guess this is in the book too but uh, i was actually just thinking about this again there was a um uh, something called Humble Time Radio. It was just like all, they had like this Texas singer-songwriter showcase. And it was like this weekly show. Um, and this was like a, a live show, but they would record it and they broadcast it on Kind and on try to syndicate it to other places. Try to get even like legal stations yeah. to play it. And it was just like mostly unsigned. Um, like I was thinking of it because I came across like the, the CD that they gave me of an episode. And... Um, and I was like Googling because I was like trying to find out if they were still around. And I guess they shut down like around 2009 or 10. But um, it was like all like getting local people out there, mostly unsigned, though, if they, they could have like someone like Ray Wiley Hubbard was on this disc, like the headline, they would do that, you know. Um, and they had like really talented people, you know, singing sometimes, you know, I mean, in one case, like this really funny song. Um, and uh, I was like Googling the names of these people and they did not you know, take off. They're like just like local hill country artists, mm. you know, and kind was like the sort of place that could be a showcase for that, that, you know, understood that, um, that this would be, and actually one of the first pieces I did 
after not as a freelancer like that story I did about Dunifer, but after I joined the staff in '99, one of the first articles I did was about um, humble time radio, humble time um, show, and kind radio, and this just whole nexus of um, a local DIY culture um, as, as just we we had sort of a big package on DIY culture, and I did this my little radio corner of it. Um, so and it was uh, you know it was good looking back at that um, and my nostalgic moment. Um, uh, I found yeah. I find a little YouTube documentary about one of the guys. Um, I like worked for like just like a phone company or something like that, you know. And then he wrote these songs in his spare time, you know. And <laughs> and the one on this disc was just like this really funny thing about like an office gossip you know it's but yeah so i i whatever question you ask i probably have answered it and then some with uh, yeah oh yeah we're yeah like i said we're somewhere in the fourth or fifth mattress but i'd like to keep going i'd like right. to keep get down seven eight mattresses deep okay uh, in your in your book i remember uh you were you talk about how maybe some of the energy of community radio is going to manifest itself going forward and uh, you know in internet broadcasting and and stuff like that. I think that was in your book or maybe I read it in one of your articles. Uh, but do you, I, I kind of want to get your take on, you know, going forward, I, I, I've made the claim that I think podcasting in a lot of ways is harvesting the energy that was left over from community radio. And it's, it's kind of that almost that same thing. Um, but even in, in some ways, even better in some ways uh, it removes what I believe is the romantic aspect of radio where you just don't, know if anybody's tuning into any particular thing and the signal just goes out in the night and you just, you know, nobody knows. It's just this one way broadcast that um, is looked at it, you know, as in some ways inferior, but in some ways you, it, like I said, kind of romantic. Um, but going forward, do you think, do you think that there is still, I don't want to say demand, but uh, is there room for pirate radio? Because it, it's certainly taken a backseat, even in my as long as I've been conscious of radio as a something that I'm interested in, say since 2000, maybe or 99 or so um, I've seen pirate radio be something. And then now it just doesn't feel like it is in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, a lot, I, the internet absorbed a lot of that energy. Um, um, but I mean, both for better and for worse. I mean, right. it, I, I mean, it, there was a time, I mean, 20 years ago, you would have people talk about, well, how can we use the internet? And there was, um, like I can remember, the, uh, Lorenzo Irvin, this old Black Panther who had like, a station in Chattanooga saying, like, yeah, my audience, they don't have computers, you know? And, yeah. and they'd say, well, you can use it in other ways. You can, you, know, you could have a computer and get programs from other places via the, you know? But it's nowadays, you know, internet access is so much more widespread. Um, that that kind of objection isn't as strong as it used to be, though it still matters, you know? Um, and I think, you know, analog tech, there are good reasons to have analog technologies too, you know? It's, yeah. um, so, but it's, um, I'll tell you, this, this is kind of a long way around of answering the question. So, so it's in the tradition of the last answer. Um, the, um, when I started writing Rebels on the Air, I thought it was going to be just a, a requiem for good radio you know i saw radio what i liked about radio dying um i saw like areas like community radio which had been like sort of what i liked best about radio getting um turned into something like npr junior you know and getting these sort of incentives built into the subsidies that led it towards that and 
and I saw, um, you know, the FCC cracking down on pirate stations. I thought they would be like the last romantic hurrah. I really thought I was going to end up writing a pessimistic book, and I got optimistic over the course of writing it, partly because of dealing with all these, you know, enthusiastic and mostly young, um, they're not all young, um, uh, pirate broadcasters, and, and knowing not only are they building interesting stations, but they're going to build interesting alternative media, even if it's not in radio, ultimately, right? Yeah. Um, but also because, you know, the, it was clear that the internet had this potential. Um, and even things that I used to think of as drawbacks to the internet are, are not so much anymore. Um, there, I mean, I, I mentioned like the, the class issue. There, there's also the question of, um, it used to be when podcasting started, like people using the word podcasting, which was like uh, the Bush era, you know, um, one, on the, I was sort of like on the one hand, hey, this is a, a great way to have all these new um, new talk shows, you know, appearing and like a massive removal of entry barriers. But on the other hand, you couldn't do this live. Yeah. You know, it's always yeah. something recorded that people download later. You know, the idea of, the, of like this time when you can have live streams and everything. I mean, that was still a science fiction future then. And, mm-hmm. and now, of course, that's been democratized. Um, so I am... Um, I got, you know, the internet is different and there's things that it, it's not, it's not regionally based, but you can do local and regional stuff on the internet. I mean, yep. I've been on local email lists and things like that. I, I think people underrate the extent to which, even though it's a global medium, it can be a local one too. Um, but yeah, it, it's, uh, it, and you mentioned like the discussion in the book of what I saw coming. Um, I, I, you were wondering if that was like in the book or the article. I, I, I did an article that wound up also in the book. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. So I mean, there was a reason article called like something like the real future. Maybe it was the subtitle was the real future of internet radio. And it's, it's one of like the two or three things I've written in my life that are, I think really prescient, like things worked out, like I said, because I talked, I didn't talk so much about podcasting, but I talked about basically um, streaming and, and argued that, um, what you'll see emerging, you could ha- you will have things that are like radio stations. You will also have things where you can, I mean, I was basically predicting Spotify, you know, where you can just pick a genre or something and then have things. Uh, and I, and I, the mechanism that I said this would happen, that could happen, be, was, was not what happened. I said, mm-hmm. look, people, radio stations are using technologies like this to select, um, to select um, their playlists. And there's no reason why you couldn't cut out the middleman have this online and have it be much more narrowly tailored to what someone wants. So you're not stuck with what, you know, the demographic of people who might respond to these ads on this radio station with a playlist that's not going to be more than 400 songs at any given week. You know, you could have something that's much preferable to a radio station like that. And we got that, but it, it was not through, I actually thought that the um, companies that were creating, they were called like recommendation engines, um, for radio stations, that they just might move into a mass consumer market. And there mm-hmm. were some movement towards that. But what basically had it happened was um, you had like other places like Spotify and Apple and, and so forth, like doing their own version of it. But it's the same um, sort of hybrid medium that emerged. And uh, I think between that and podcasting and file sharing, um, uh, you know, we've really gotten, we've really found ways to route around most of what's bad about commercial and public radio, um, Mm. traditional radio. 
um, and that I spent so much of Rebels on the Air complaining about and complaining about the uh, government's entry barriers that make it, kept us stuck with this stuff. So um, I'd like to see people just broadcasting pirate stations from the hills because it's romantic and mm-hmm. it's, you know, but it's uh, it, it's nice that that's not as necessary as it felt 20 years ago or 25 years ago. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and I mean, I know that, once a law is on the books, it's, you know, it ain't coming off, but there is something that I hope that maybe uh, decreasing, you know, if, if we found a way around it through podcasting, file sharing, you know, all that <laughs> is the government just going to be like, well, you know, who cares anymore? Let's just lift restrictions on pirate radio because nobody yeah. uses it anyway. And right. maybe, maybe bring them back in. But that, yeah, I know that that's they a- would reallocate. If we got to the point where nobody listened to AM or FM radio, they would reallocate that spectrum. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, and they probably would not, I mean, if we're fortunate, they would do it in a market ish way so that you could at least have things flow towards, you know, where people are willing to more will, you know, find it more useful, but it, it's, it could more likely be done on a, political basis of, you know, which, uh, you know, cell phone company uh, or, or, or whatever it is, you know, is right. You know, in, in bed with the FCC that day, um, not quite as cynical as that, but you know, almost as cynical scenario as that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jesse. Um, you- so one of the things that now I'm, I'm thinking about because car, you, you bring up the, the podcast dynamic now that maybe it's podcasting has taken over, uh, pirate radio. Jesse, what do you think about uh, the idea that, you know, when you're doing a pirate radio, uh, you can uh, more often than not, you could probably say that that in and of itself is a form of protest, right? Am I, am I right about that? Yeah. So yeah. I mean, how some do- stations were created in order specifically to de- to defy the FCC. Right, exactly. I mean, just to do that, but they saw it as an act of deliberate civil disobedience. Exactly. So it's the, not it, all of them. Some of them were just like, "Hey, nobody's broadcasting to this immigrant community. Sure. We're going to set something up." And there's actually this still goes on a lot in Miami, in particular. Um, and like, we're going to just broadcast um, stuff to them and hope nobody notices us. Yeah. Um, but right. there was definitely a lot of deliberate political and- directive. And so on to on that note, the, the for, so basically for the people who were doing it as a form of protest, right? Podcasting, if if we say maybe that was sort of a successor to this this whole thing, even though I I know it's still uh, alive today. What would you say has to be done in podcasting to continue that that sort of rebellious spirit? Because just podcasting, you're not actually defying the FCC the way that pirate radio just turning that radio on is in defiance. So what would you say podcasters would have to do? Do they have to educate more? They have a larger reach than most pirate radios. So like, what would you say, where would you take this as far as podcasters continuing that spirit of rebellion? Well, I mean, one thing you can do is count your blessings that you don't have to worry about Mm -hmm. (laughs) the FCC coming after you. I mean, if you wanted, like, I feel like the ways to sort of fight this, I mean, there there are is obviously organized and also quite a bit of disorganized disobedience around um, intellectual property laws. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has an impact on um, Internet broadcasters who use music, which is, you know, different in general from podcasting. Right. Um, um, 
it, of course, it's not so hard to have a takedown order too. It, 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 I just feel like the um, the the counterparts in um, the internet now, other than the intellectual property thing, have to do. I mean, just in terms of like the doing what the micro broadcasters were doing in terms of um, trying to uh, build, you know, uh, the alternative to what they didn't like, and make their own media um, because they don't like the existing media, mm-hmm. um, you know, show how it can be done and stake out a place. It's like the people who are trying to build um, uh, alternatives to the centralized parts of, of the internet. You know, yeah. I mean, people worry about um, Google and Facebook having um, as much uh, authority or authority is not the right word, but as much weight as they do. And the fears that uh, that could be entrenched further um, by you know, partnerships with the government. Um, and so when I hear about people trying to build um, social media alternatives, um, and I don't mean dumb shit like Gab, where it's like, hey, let's have our own Twitter for Nazis. You know? Right, right. <laughs> it's like, it's like, uh, it's, you know, when people are trying to have like an actual decentralized um, social media that sort of, sort of in ways like with an architecture that mirrors in a way the early net in that maybe you could be um, uh, porting between your Twitter and Facebook and all, but you're not answering to, um, you know, one central company that can take things down. Right. I mean, that, let alone, you know, I mean, whether on their own or because uh, a, a rule has been passed in Washington, um, that's sort of where, you know, the the counterparts to the old um, pirate broadcasters are, I think. They're not breaking the law, mm-hmm. but they're trying to build their own media, um, and they're trying to build it in a way that's not just for them, but it's like sort of a general architecture you know, more people can use in the same way that the early internet became, or the, the web itself became this sort of architecture that um, lots of people beyond the original so-called digerati, you know, could use. Mm. You remember that word, digerati? No, like, I do not. Like not even a, special, a little. <laughs> when they had to have a special name for people who were online, and it was like, it's sort of like, we are the internet of the, we are the digerati, you know, and digerati. it was usually used in a tongue-in-cheek way, but yeah. not always, and they would just make you wits. Um, <laughs> when when was this? Yeah, right. Like it's like an early '90s thing. Although it sounds like you could, an early 90s you could probably find people using it as as uh, as late as the early aughts. But it's really kind of like a not just early '90s. But it's like if you go to like early issues of Wired magazine, I bet you could find that word a lot. Can we, can we bring that back? Can we bring back? Yeah, what's we'll, 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 We got it, Jess. We got it from you. The Illumina Digerati or the Illumina. That's right. That's done. It's done. I'm right now. Oh man, that's I mean that's what I've always thought is if you're you know the protest used to be more of a direct protest against the government and now it's sort of a decentralization process which seems to have been the trend of libertarianism as of late which is you know I'm all all for it I, I'm really excited to be a part of this decentralization thing. Yeah, I mean, and and it's and remember the people who are pirate broadcasters they weren't just protesting the government and the FCC they were protesting um the state of commercial radio True, i mean of right. the sort of radio oligopoly that the fcc had erected and mm-hmm. it, I, when i that march i mentioned at the beginning of this we marched on the fcc and on the nab and the nab was a lot a lot angrier than the fcc when, when, when everybody got to the fcc i have to say 
all these FCCC people were looking out the window. They they had never been protested before. <laughs> it's like oh, we get a protest, you know. That's like something usually for the Pentagon or something, you know. It's yeah. like, it was like they. It was like the novelty of it. It was like I, I'm sure that ninety percent of them were delighted that it happened. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> right. Mid-level FCC worker had like an interesting story to tell, but the NAB. I mean, partly because someone decided to climb up the flagpole and steal their flag, which they don't like. Um, Is that right? Yeah, at the NAB. Yeah, but they did. They were all like, "Oh, you can't be on our property," because like they were sort of like, you know, the crowd encroaching a little bit off the. Uh, uh, public sidewalk space so they well, where where are they? they they have headquarters in in washington dc i mean like, and i know and for anybody that's listening I, I don't think we ever covered it but that's the national association of broadcasters yeah sorry sorry and, if I'm not um, and they're they're basically just like a union slash lobbying group is is my understanding yeah i mean they're they're a, a lobby for the commercial um yeah. radio industry and um the the thing about the commercial radio industry is, or, or, or as, as a, the thing about the NAB is, they can be quite good on issues where the government is trying to mess with stations that have gotten into the club, right? But they do not want to let anyone else into the club. Sure. Um, yeah. So I've had like interesting interactions with them. I mean, they have occasionally like, um, I mean, I'm on there you know, their, their press list and all that. And I don't write about these issues as much anymore, but they have been like, you know, friendly to me about, um, I, I mean, like if they think there's some bill that I'm going to agree with them on, which you know, I, I remember there was, um, I forget the name of the, um, it was this terrible bill, but it was like, uh, I was on the same side as them as were all the small community and college broadcasters, because it would have like immensely increased the cost of broadcasting. It was like this intellectual uh, change in the way of, of you know, the, who gets payments for um, music that's played. Mm. Mm. Um, and I remember some people like saying like, oh, don't you realize you're on the same side as the National, National Association of Broadcasters? And I'm like, yeah, the alternative, I'd be on the same side as the RAA, yeah, like the music industry lobby, you know, either way, there's a big evil lobby that's going to be, you know, shoulder to shoulder with. So just choose your poison. This is actually, they're on the right side this time. Um, but yeah, yeah. So they're they're based in D.C., um, not far from the FCC. Very convenient, or at least not. I think the FCC might have moved. If they did, it would be interesting to see if the um, NAB also moved. Right. <laughs> they keep making that quick, uh, quick hike over when they need to have a conversation. Yeah. What a shame. What a shame. Uh, I have here that you went to University of Michigan. Yes. So I'd like to discuss the 2012 Sugar Bowl for a brief period. <laughs> Do you recognize that Danny Cole caught that ball in the end zone and Virginia Tech won that game? I I th- I, th- I, I, I I have no power to to alter the past. I'm just sorry. say Virginia not, Tech won the game. This is not win. this is not a place to reopen old wounds in hopes of trying right. to uh, uh, change uh, change the way the record looks. Like. AKA Carr, your team lost. <laughs> it lost a long time ago. That was a catch. <laughs> uh, I have you this since you're from North Carolina. I was in I was an undergrad when uh, Michigan played UNC in the NCAA finals. Oh man! And um, I mean, I'm a basketball fan because I grew up in North Carolina. So I was yeah. going to be for UNC. Sorry, Michigan. Right? If they if they had a football game, I'll cheer for Michigan. Okay, but it's like, yeah. So I'm watching with my friends, and they're just sort of like. Um, 
sort of like, ha ha, yeah, Jesse's for them. But then like at the end of the game, it's like, all right, Jesse, whatever. Yeah. So <laughs> I walk into, um, and, and of course they're having the, uh, the usual basketball riot that always follows um, sure. any sort of final four game in, in any college town. Um, and there's like this uh, group of people um, with like, some sort of, they might have had, they were in a circle and I'm trying to remember if there was actually like a flame in the middle of the circle, like Jesus. in downtown Ann Arbor, or if they were, if I'm just sort of creating it in my mind. Um, but they're all just sort of chanting, you know, fuck NC, oh fuck God. NC. <laughs> and I, I had suddenly realized that there's like a 50-50 chance, you know, or, or at least a better than 10% chance that someone will see me across the road and you know like hey jesse you're from chapel hill who are you <laughs> oh my god and that i will be lynched that evening yep. yeah so i'm suddenly like i start feeling like you know mr Viet Cong in the black pajamas trying to get out of there without <laughs> being noticed by anyone sure but yes so i got to so, michigan that time you'll at, at any rate and I do have you. I just wrote down that you do admit the Virginia Tech won that game in 2012. So <laughs> he's not going to stop, Jesse. You. He's going to keep. He's going to keep going until he gets this minor victory. <laughs> he's going to uh, get the next uh, interviewee to to say, "I want you to." <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want you to acknowledge that you talked to Jesse and Jesse acknowledged. <laughs> yeah, just that, that fabricate an entire story. I, I will not stop at the first mattress. That is for damn sure. Oh man. Uh, well, Jesse, it looks like your your time is about up, but we don't want to hold oh, you yeah, here over. Do you want to um? Do you want to do any plugs? Talk about your book real quick. I mean, we talked about your book the whole time. You want to plug your book? I, I I've written two books. Nice. So the one we've been mostly talking about is called Rebels on the Air: An Alternative History and Ra- of Radio in America. Came out in 2001. Um, NYU Press published it, um, and yeah. it's still in print. And buy the paperback because as soon as the paperback came out, they repriced the hardcover for libraries. So it's mm. like some absurd, like eighty dollars or something. Jesus. But the uh, the the paperback is priced for like normal people to buy, cool. and it's you know my juvenilia and all because it like came out you know almost two decades ago. And it's out of date in all kinds of ways, but you know you might find it interesting. And then five years ago, I wrote the United States of Paranoia, conspiracy theory. Ooh. It's a history of conspiracy folklore in the, in America, not what? just the United States. It goes back to the colonial days. Harper Collins published it, um, and that's still out and about as well. So. I did not. I, for, I forgot. I totally forgot to tell you about that bird, and I actually haven't I read that yet. Just didn't thought, know it's, that. It's on, and it's that's like, but, yeah, we, but have you bought it? That's the important thing. Not have you. <laughs> Now I gotta go yeah, buy that. I have to I went go- hardcover. I have to go buy that. Jesse, that's like half the theme of our podcast is American conspiracy theories. Oh, really? And then the other half is radio broadcasting. Yeah. Wow. I, I see I conceived this whole radio state you this did. whole podcast I- in a food state or something. I Yeah, yeah, maybe that's what it is. Wow, Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> and then, do you um, want to plug a Twitter? Do you have a, any Facebook? Yeah, and my, such? my Twitter address is not Jesse Walker. N O T J E S S E W A L K E R. There's no blue check mark because if there's like a con- if they confirm that I'm not Jesse Walker, I don't know what that would even mean. <laughs> but I'm I'm there, and you can find me at Reason.com. Um, I'm no longer blogging every day, but I get stuff up, you know, each each week usually, certainly every month. Mm. Um, and and of course, I write longer stuff for the magazine still. I've been trying to focus more on that. Cool. Um, and yeah, you know, uh, I, I'm I pop up here and there, and I those are probably the main places 
I should I should probably have a way of plugging my activities that doesn't end with me just sort of trailing off like this. It's okay. But, we do that all the time. It's a, I don't yeah. I think that's just a natural consequence of having more than one thing to plug. Yeah, yeah and, and usually we just like to, to fade. We just fade the podcast out. And then we just, go, just down into muttering and then just, it just muttering. Ends. Yeah, right. That's how we usually do it. It might have already ended. I have no idea. It just depends on what Bird's doing with the dial. Basically. <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming on. This was a this was great. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, uh, just talking about radio and hearing about the uh, that late '90s struggle is. <laughs> Well, thanks, a, thanks for having me on. It's it's been a while since I've talked about this, and I, you could you could probably tell you I was remembering things I hadn't thought about for a while, and it was uh, it was fun to bring those back. Nobody interviews me about radio anymore. That's uh, hey, well, if if you open and coming on, uh, on again down the down the line, maybe I'll re- maybe I'll read that uh, one of the copies of uh, your conspiracy book. Oh, that, I am. Know, I bought that's many. that's already uh, in the uh, Amazon cart for me. Um, yeah. that's. Uh, yeah, that'd be great. I mean, that'd be great. But uh, hopefully we'll stay in touch. And, and thanks again for coming on. All right. Take care. <laughs>